Hey everyone, I'm Veronica Roshek, and I'm your host of the Amplify Iowa podcast. This is a place to hear the stories of our favorite, some of the fastest growing, and some super unique local businesses directly from their leaders. Thank you so much for being here. Let's go ahead and get started. Today's episode, we are talking with Melissa Vine, who is the executive director of Beacon of Life. Beacon of Life is a transitional home for women coming out of incarceration, domestic violence, and homelessness right here in Des Moines in the Sherman Hill area, if you're familiar with Des Moines and are located here. Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of this today. Yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, If you could just tell us a little bit about Beacon of Life in general and then also how you got here. Sure. So Beacon of Life has 35 beds here in Sherman Hill and it's it's you wouldn't even notice if you walk past it. We just look like a large house on the corner um, across from Apostle and down the street from Gateway Market. Um, And we want to just blend in with our uh, residential neighborhood here. Um, And so basically, um, we work with the Mitchellville Correctional Facility for Women. So most of our clients are coming directly from prison and then dropped off um, at our location. We also have a percentage, a smaller percentage of women who are coming directly from the streets or substance use treatment or they're fleeing domestic violence. Um, And we want this place to be somewhere where they can not only have residential care, um, a home uh, k- kitchen and living room and, and place to stay, but also there's programming and staff here. So um, we're wanting to help those women move from a place of um, feeling discouraged by life and, and just been struggling, experiencing crisis and trauma on top of trauma, and then help them work through our program so that they're um, experiencing sort of those eight spokes of the wheel of wellness, um, according to SAMHSA, which include emotional, physical, spiritual, occupational, environmental, social, intellectual, and financial potential so very that's what holistic our yeah, yeah yeah love that and you're taking the whole person you're not just looking at you know oh you did this one thing wrong and then we're gonna fix that it's right so- because trauma is complicated right yeah so yeah um, yeah and so I my story in ending up here is yes. it's a bit long and winding I my background um, originally was in business ownership and um, I was married and we owned businesses together and we had four boys together who are now teenagers or almost all teenagers and kind of went through a time in my life when I was beginning to have a paradigm shift and, and was realizing that there was a fair amount of domestic violence um, in my marriage and uh, was in some, some kind of strict religious circles and, and so had to take some steps of courage um, to step out of that relationship and step out of some of those unhealthy circles for me and um, during that time, I decided uh, I was learning so much about psychology and how people work and how did I end up here in life. And so I started reading everything I could get my hands on, right? So I was kind of moving out of my bubble of I'd only read certain types of books and I was exploring other ways of looking at the world. And, and as I began reading these books, I'm like, well, I should be getting credit for all of this work I'm doing. So, so I went ahead and got my master's degree. <laughs> and so, so I got a master's in counseling. And through that, I was learning so much about mental health and relationships. And uh, when I started my master's, I, I didn't necessarily have the intent of, of being a therapist. But by the time I finished my master's degree, well, then I was divorced. I was a single mom of four um, young children, and I wasn't able, I was not getting child support. And overnight, I went from being wealthy to being in absolute poverty. I mean, we were on food stamps. We barely had enough money to get through the month for a couple of years. And 
I finished my master's and, and started out in the career world. And, and so being a therapist made the most sense since I had that a master's at the end of that time. But it, before that, I worked as a domestic violence and sexual assault advocate. And so I became aware of the social work world. So now I had done business, social work, and then I moved into mental health counseling. I did that for about five years, worked with primarily um, folks coming out of trauma. It's really specialized in women. Uh, and then uh, once I had my full uh, letters, the LMHC letters, then I, w I wanted to look at how am I wired and where, where would I best fit somewhere. And um, at the time, I was actually looking at purchasing a business and then uh, the pandemic hit. And so I'm like, you know, as a single income earner of my home, I'm not sure it's wise for me to take out a large loan at this time um, with the current economic climate. And so this position became available. A friend sent it to me and, and I thought, oh, I don't know. I, I've not you know, written grants before or done fundraising. I'm not sure I would fit. But um, and the more I got to know this organization and learned about some of those gaps I had, the more I became excited about this position. I'm like, this brings together everything in my past because running a nonprofit is, is very similar to, you know, running a business as far as paying attention to finances and staffing. And, Absolutely. and then I had the social work and the mental health piece. And so um, I kinda, it kind of brought it all together. So I started here in July, been here then about four months. And it has just been my sweet spot. Like I love, I love this place. I love the work. It, it fills my bucket, whereas jobs I've had in the past, I felt empty at the end of the day. Um, and this one, even though it's the most work of a, any job <laughs> I've done, like I actually, like my bucket feels full when I go home to my boys and that's really important so that they yeah. get the best of me too, so. That's great. It makes so much sense how you've gotten to here. Through the path, it's like you go here, you go here, and they're all pieces of the puzzle. And now it's like the whole puzzle is complete. It feels kind Absolutely. of, you know, as very like cliche, but it well, really no, does, it does feel it, like that. And for most people, 2020 has been a, is it has been a downer for yeah. them. But for me, 2020 is like, I made it. Like, this has been my best year. It's like I went through the difficult years and, and, and you know, doing jobs that weren't the best fit you know, for me as far as like uh, filling my own bucket. And so now being in a place where I love what I'm doing, um, I was able to move back to Des Moines. That took some work and we got back into the city and near family. And um, so I'm actually feeling really good this year. And That's great. Um, not to minimize anyone else's yeah. um, struggling, but it's, it's been a good year. So, and, and I would say what I can bring to the table here at Beacon too, is that when I went through my dark times, because I grew up white, middle-class, straight, cisgender, like I brought to that situation a lot of privilege and I mm. knew how to get out. I had seen it modeled. I'd seen financial success modeled. I had seen emotional success modeled, right? So I knew, okay, you know, go to a counselor for a while there. T you know, if you need antidepressant medication, keep your credit score high. Don't go into debt. Budget your money. Keep going on savings, you know. Yep. Only purchase a car with cash. Like all these certain things that I had learned growing up and, and was able to stick with that plan and work more and more toward a place where we were, I was financially and emotionally and, and career just stable in those areas. And I, so the folks that come to the beacon don't necessarily have those before them. It's, it's, someone said to me once, it's not about making the right choice. It's about having the right choice in front mm -hmm. of you, right? So these women maybe don't know what all the choices are that exist and they see people successful in life, but it feels very disconnected from their community and from what they've experienced, especially if you grow up in generational poverty or you are um, a woman of color 
if you're in the LGBTQ community, right? So a lot of those folks have uh, strikes against them, right, before they even begin their life. And that has nothing to do with them making bad choices or being bad people. Right. It's situations that they grew up in and things that they were handed and coping skills that they learned that don't lead to help, right? So here at the Beacon, I can bring to the table, yeah, I know what trauma is like, but I also had education and I knew how to get out. And I want to provide that same opportunity for the women here to educate them on systems of oppression and to educate them on how do people end up in this, how, how did I get here, right? Let's, let's take an ACEs test and, and see how trauma impacted your propensity to uh, land in, in prison or to end up on the streets, right? And so that it's not just about, oh, I'm a bad person, but it's, oh, there are these things happening at a uh, macro level that I didn't even know existed, so. Right. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, there were so many good things in what you just <laughs> said. I don't even know where to start. Man, that was that's great. Yeah, coming out of a traumatic domestic violence situation, regardless of your situation, is just astronomically difficult. Mm. And so uh, being able to do that and then speak about it openly is, <laughs> is awesome. I think that is something that we need more of in the world too. But then in addition to that, touching on that level of, yes, you overcame all of these things, but you did have this level of privilege. You you mm-hmm. knew all of these things because mm-hmm. you, you had access to them. And there's mm-hmm. so many people out there that don't have those choices or just don't know that they're there. The choices are, could be available, but they've never, right. they've never seen it. They've never experienced it. Right, right. They've, they just feel like this is what they're supposed to be or who they are or whatever it happens to be. And they're stuck in that, that mindset. It's, it's the difference between watching someone play basketball on TV and yeah. going, oh, I see there that there are basketball players. But have, has anyone ever handed you a basketball and said, here's a hoop and here's how you shoot the ball and here's yeah. how you dribble? Right. It's, it's very different to have people beside you walking that with you as opposed to seeing it at a distance. And so I had people in my life growing up that I saw beside me doing those things. Um, whereas a lot of the women who come here, it's something they've only watched on TV, right? Yeah, and so how do yeah. we put that in there, put the basketball in their hand and, and show them how to dribble? So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. That's a good analogy. So the women that you serve here, who would you say, you said a, a good portion of them are coming here from incarceration, from mm-hmm. women's prison, but then mm-hmm. there's a combination of ones that are coming out of a homelessness or just straight out of a domestic violence situation. Yeah, it's primarily women that are saying, I want to live clean and sober. I want to get my life together. So um, we aren't an emergency shelter in that, you know, anyone can just come through our door and get a bed. I mean, there are times, you know, of course, when when that has happened. But in general, they kind of go through our pre-screening process and say, is this the kind of program you're interested in? Right, because it's it's not an easy program. I mean, the first two months you're here, your curfew is 4 o'clock p.m. And that includes your job and anything you need to take care of. So it's, it's a strict program. Everything you have is, is searched and um, there's you know a lot of chores that you have to do and you have to secure employment within two weeks of being here. They pay rent to be here. So it's some of the clients have likened it to boot camp, but then they, once you get through phase one, it lightens up a little bit. But we want to know that, hey, I'm serious about my sobriety. I'm serious about putting my life together. And it, then it, it protects the other women of the house when they see everyone's working together on this, right? So I can't have folks coming in here under the influence if everyone else is trying to stay clean and sober. Sure. So yeah. we, we try to find that balance where we are protecting, an understanding that sometimes, you know, mistakes happen, but then also we need to protect the women of the house who are really working hard on their program. And so doing that in a trauma-informed way 
where we treat people um, the best that we can, knowing what they've been through. That's that can be sometimes difficult. But but what what's interesting to me though is on your piece where you know most of our women are coming from prison. This 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 is something that I think makes a lot of sense to people, but for some reason there's a bottleneck and we can't seem to get the system changed. But if you take a woman who has for the most part, typically grown mm -hmm. up in generational poverty. Yep. Perhaps they are a woman of color or they're in the LGBTQ community. They've been in some kind of marginalized community. Um, and they have, a lot of our women here have experienced domestic violence, either from a, a parent or a, a step-parent or a caregiver or a partner at some point. Right, so now you have these traumatized women who've grown up in generational poverty. They don't have models of you know uh, success for their life. And then they start using drugs or selling drugs in order to cope with all of this trauma, right? Because they don't see it modeled where folks are getting mental health support and psychiatric support. And then they end up in prison, you know, because they were using drugs or maybe they were selling drugs to try to make ends meet, maybe um, selling themselves. And we put them in prison where they experience another form of trauma on top of the trauma, right? So you're already feeling isolated and ashamed about who you are and where you're going in life. And then we lock you up in prison where you feel more isolated and more ashamed and you're treated with less human dignity. And then you're supposed to come out of prison a better person, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's mm -hmm. the goal, like, right? Like so we say, oh, the prison system, you know, it's a reform, yeah. you know, come out and go live a productive life. How is it helpful to shame someone who's been using substances to manage their trauma symptoms, right? Now, if you have a violent offender and they're not safe to the community, different story, right? But we're talking about women here who are just traumatized women trying to figure out how to get through life. So the prison system actually, I think, makes the situation worse. And then they come to us, right? So now right. there's a lot of layers of trauma to work through. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. I, so a lot of them have those same experiences across the board. You're really dealing with the same person. It's just some have had multiple layers of that because they've also been through prison. Yes, right? And yeah. so, I mean, I think in the ideal world, um, when a woman comes before the judge, she's been, you know, using substances or, or selling substances to survive, send them to the beacon of life, right? <laughs> or, or something like this, <laughs> or some, right? Yeah. Send, send them to a place like this where they can receive healing, they can work through their trauma, they can have mental health counseling, substance use treatment, they're getting job training here. So then they're like, oh, there are other ways to cope with life other than substances. There are other ways to make money, good money, other than selling substances, right? So it just, to me, it seems like common sense. And there are several countries in the world that have this figured out. <laughs> Don't put substance users in prison. <laughs> You're making the problem yeah. worse. Um, but we'll do what we can for now. And, and hopefully down the road, the system will be reformed to be a more restorative justice, trauma-informed model, I think would be helpful yeah. to the whole community. Yeah. But, I completely agree with that, and I don't know nearly as much about it as you do, but I think that it makes perfect sense and that that's something that we need to work on more as a society and really dig into and do some further education yeah. on so that people uh, understand that yes. there's a different process. It doesn't mean that you aren't going through some sort of reform, treatment, mm -hmm. betterment, mm -hmm. um, you know, therapy, ways of figuring out how to cope. Uh, it's just a, a different way of doing that so that you're not actually limiting them even more. Right. It re-traumatizes folks, yes. right? Because yeah. I mean, you can't imagine that prison would be a healthy place to grow, right? Oh, no. I, <laughs> no, yeah. no. Um, there, there's certainly opportunities there, but no, I don't think that's the best place for people to learn how no. to grow and become a better person, certainly. No. Uh -uh. Makes perfect sense.
Tell us a little bit more about what the program is. How long is the program? Is it different depending on uh, how how someone would necessarily come here? Is it individualized? Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, that's a great question. So if you go through the program in its entirety, it's a minimum of six months. It's a five-phase program. The first phase is two months long, then it's a month for each phase after that. And each phase provides slightly less structure and a little bit more freedom so that there's a little bit of an ease back into society. And so the the level of accountability is highest at the beginning. Um, and then we kind of help folks move to a place of greater self-efficacy and self-sufficiency as they go through the program. They can stay here up to two years. Um, okay. And then during, so our programming includes um, mental health. Uh, so they, they t- have an assessment and see if they need um, to receive regular counseling as part of that. We have a uh, group class that we offer here in house that they are required to take. And that is teaching them other ways to cope with emotions and things like that as opposed to substance use. So they're learning those things. They're learning, they take a class on healthy relationships. They take a financial education course. They work one-on-one with a budgeting coach to look at their expenses and what debt they might have and then how they can start saving up. In order to graduate, they have to have $500 savings account. And then they work with, they do, they attend NA and AA every week here in-house substance groups, treatment groups. And then they participate in chores as far as cleaning. They take turns cooking. They work together with each other to come up with menus. Um, most of our food is donated by Cisco. Uh, we are working with Project Iowa, and that's a fantastic nonprofit in town where they receive job training and job placement assistance so that they're not uh, just doing some of those uh, low-paying jobs, but let's help them get uh, trained and certified to do jobs that would have a better income for them. And so Project Iowa a great partner thus that and then that also helps them to build self-efficacy as far as oh I am worth doing a job that pays more because a lot of folks who've experienced trauma one of the barriers is actually themselves Mm. in that I mean it's what others have done to them but then it's this belief that I'm limited in how much I can achieve because I have these poor beliefs about myself person so I don't seek out healthy happy relationships and I don't seek out more successful jobs because I feel like I don't deserve it. So one of our biggest barriers is psychological um, in that, hey, actually you do deserve to have people treat you well and you actually do deserve to make a decent amount of money. So let's help you get there. I have seen clients who, uh, because they've experienced so much trauma and abuse in their lives, when something good happens, they actually self-sabotage it because they feel like they don't deserve it. And so that's a really big barrier that a lot of folks can't see. Um, they, uh, they've also, they've done studies, um, this is from the, the, the Bible on trauma, which is the body keeps the score, and it talks about how dogs who have been repeatedly shocked growing up, that if you, with, with their door to their cage shut, so they're shocked and they're stuck in their cage, they can't get out, which mimics being abused in childhood, right, where you're being mistreated and there's nothing to do because you don't have power to do anything. Then they open the door, they shock the dog, and the dogs who have been shocked throughout their, you know, growing up years, won't run out of cage shocked. Whereas the dogs who have not experienced that shock before will run out of the cage and run to safety. So folks who have repeatedly experienced traumatization, when they are re-traumatized, tend to stay in it because it feels normal, right? And so there's a lot of psychological barriers and our programming is trying to address both the logistical, let me show you what options exist and how to get there, but also Let's talk through some of those psychological barriers. Ah, it's deep stuff. It's really deep, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yes, uh, I've done some level of research into some of this and mm -hmm. my own past uh, career as working with um, individuals that had behavioral disabilities, which a lot of times was just stemmed in trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and so that uh, I, I can relate that to situations with people in very different circumstances mm -hmm. as being 100% true. Um, and so uh, to kind of segue that, because you did such a great job of talking through that already, too, <laughs> uh, your staff here, one of the things is uh, I always get to tour these locations, and it's so fun for me to be able to see the whole place. And I know that something that came up is being able to have some level of counseling or therapy mm -hmm. available at all times through through the program and even on staff. Can you tell us a little bit about who your people are here? What, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So we have, um, we have our office manager. And then we have a, a case manager who works directly with the women as they go through the program and make sure they're, um, they're completing their tasks and they're uh, need to, getting the resources and support that they need to um, experience success, right? And then with the case manager works our resident assistant. So we are housed 24, or we are staffed 24 seven with a resident assistant. Some of it's volunteer and some of them are staff. And then they sit at the desk for women when they come in and out to check in and check out if they medicines, things like that, that they go to the resident assistant. So, and then, um, so I function as the executive director. So most of my role is, is uh, meetings and or getting out in the community or grant writing and some of those things. So I don't get to work directly with the women very often, but I see my goal is building into my staff so that they Absolutely. are staying encouraged as they um, do this hard work. Uh, we also, I, I, what I would like to see happen is uh, some some form of mental health counseling within our house here. So I'm not exactly sure how that's going to flesh out yet, but I would like to offer it in-house so that transportation is a really big barrier for folks. And coming from a place of privilege, yeah. that never even occurred to me. Anytime I've asked the women what they want, like for a prize or a reward or a bingo prize, you know, the first thing they say is a dart bus pass. Oh, that doesn't even cross my mind as something that I would need, right? And so... Yeah, and so the more things we can offer here in-house or using technology, the more accessible it is for these folks, right? And so, so, so that's our staff here at the house. And then we did have a thrift store that we are closing within a couple of weeks here. Um, it wasn't, just wasn't in line with our vision and it wasn't generating the income for us here. So we will be losing some of our staff that we had um, there. They've, we've had wonderful, wonderful volunteers and staff there for, for a long time. So it's a bittersweet move, but I think one that will help us to stay focused on the direction that we're heading so yeah did I, I can't remember if I even answered all your yeah <laughs> you, you definitely did you answered the question for sure that's a good uh summary of kind of who is here and then on the other side of that so that's your own staff how many women are you typically serving on a regular basis here yeah so right now our numbers are a little lower as we're remodeling um, the bedrooms and, and making them be a uh, place that feels kind and comfortable for our clients and so Typically, we have close to between 30 and 34 women is, is what we typically have. So we serve about 100 women per year. Um, obviously, not everyone you know, stays for the whole program, but um, so usually about 100 women come through the doors at some point. This year, with well, the numbers were down with COVID. There were some ways that we wanted to make sure we had rooms for quarantine and things like that. And then there was this whole, you know, quite a bit of staff turnover over the summer. So right now, we're kind of building back up, but we can't go too much because we have to... <laughs> 
we're demoing rooms, so, you know, I don't want to give someone a room where there, uh, <laughs> there's no flooring in their painting, you know, but <laughs> it'll be so nice when it's done. Though. Oh, I know. Oh, and it was beautiful. the perfect time to do it because the house isn't full. So it's, it's been really ideal. We're very excited to see how it's going to look when it's all done. Yes. That's, that's fun. It's always fun. Uh, it's not fun being in renovation. It's fun when it's over. <laughs> <laughs> but we sure. are looking, we are wanting to furnish those new rooms. And so we will be looking to raise some more capital campaign funds to, um, provide um, comfortable mattresses and um, you know drawers where the dressers where the drawers open properly and, and things like that so yes yeah. so that's another good point so as a, as a nonprofit, not as your typical you know small business in mm -hmm. the, the business world of things uh, how do you got how do you typically uh, get a majority of your funding or how yeah. can people also you know if they would like to support how can they do that yeah that's a great question we're, we're we're pretty diversified. So we have a lot of individual donors, have corporate donors, have grant funding. We do fundraising. We just had our annual cake gala in October, which is a wonderful event with awesome, yummy cakes. And then, <laughs> um, of course, we were virtual this year. It comes in a lot of forms. But of course, when you're a nonprofit, you appreciate any form that a financial help comes. So, oh, I know it like wills and bequests as well. So yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. So lots of ways that people have been able to, lots of different ways that yeah. money is coming into you. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. A lot of folks just go on the website, they're the you know, donate Donor. button there and they either get involved at one time or they do you know, a monthly mm -hmm. donation. Uh, our board does a great job of raising money. Uh, they do their board appeal and they tap into their friends and family. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, uh, that's one thing. Gosh, I'm super impressed with my predecessor and the boards that we've had in the past. Um, when I came into this position, a lot of times nonprofits are not in a very healthy financial place. So um, I was really thankful um, that they have done a really good job with their finances here. Um, the house that we own is paid off and they have, you know, they have a nice endowment fund and the budget is balanced. And it, it's just, it's run That's with nice. integrity and um, wisdom. It's, I I didn't walk into a mess. So yeah, I was very thankful for that. That's not, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so as a person that's been a small business owner essentially and being in now a, a different leadership role, what would be a piece of advice that you would give to others that may be either entering a leadership role for the first time and may think that like they're not, oh gosh, I don't know if I can do this. Or same thing if it's a small business owner, maybe making the jump from, a different business, a lot of our audience here are people that are also wanting to become you. Mm -hmm. um, and so what what would you tell those people? Mm, that's, that's a good question. The thing I like about nonprofit work is you use the mind of a business, but there's a lot of heart in it. And, and certainly you have heart when you run a business. That's, um, you see lots of businesses with uh, incredible social responsibility stance things. That, that's certainly there. Um, nonprofit work is, is, is another level of creativity because you're usually trying to do more on less than, than you yeah. are with a business. <laughs> but I think for me, one of the most helpful resources has been the books and videos with Brene Brown. She just talks about facing shame with courage. And for me, I mean, hearing my past, right? And each step I took to get out of that situation required a tremendous amount of courage for me. And I was doing things where most of the people in my life were telling me I was wrong, I was in sin, you know, all these different things. And to keep 
taking steps forward um, took a lot of courage for me. And, and I see now as running this nonprofit, there are problems that come up all the time, right? It's, it's not easy. And certainly that happens in business too. Um, and it takes courage to have hard conversations with your staff, with your board, with your partners and say, hey, this isn't going how I want it to go. Or I said something or did something that's not in line with the values of the kind of person that I want to be. Or I want to have a better relationship with you. How can we work better together? Um, how do you feel about how things are going, right? So to sit with people and have the conversations that oftentimes shame prevents us from having because we're afraid of what people are going to say. Um, but there's a quote that the most damaging conversation is the one that we never have. And for me yeah. as a leader here, it's super important to me to have open and honest and authentic conversations with my staff to address what's happening in our staff, with our clients, and with me, right? Like, are there ways that I'm leading that are upsetting to you? Or there, do I have blind spots where I'm maybe hurting people or not listening well to people? And to not be afraid to have those conversations with folks, um, it opens up a whole new world of health functioning as a team. And it's really important to me to have um, a healthy work environment. So many folks uh, dread going to work because the environment's not healthy. And so that's, that's really, really important. And our clients see that model, right? So when they see us treat each other with respect, we're modeling for them what that can look like. So Absolutely. I do public speaking on the side. I contract out to work with small businesses, actually, and do workshops with them on bringing some of these mental health and psychology concepts to the workplace when your teams aren't working well together or there's underlying tension. And so, yeah, the, my website is melissavine.com, and I do that. I do that kind of on the side and certainly it has, the work I've done in the past has informed the work that I'm doing here as well, so. Love yeah. that, that's such great advice. Yes, open communication even when it's difficult. It's always better afterwards too, even if it was a tough conversation. Oh, yeah. It's great to get it yeah. out. There's a huge uh, <laughs> amount of relief when you're like, okay, we said it. That was yeah. really hard, you know, yeah. and even my office manager and I, we're both Brene Brown fans. And so when I first started here, we had a couple hard conversations that were like, oh, we did it. Like, we can do this. Yeah. <laughs> we can have these conversations. <laughs> yeah. I love her also. And she also uh, recently came out with a podcast. Uh, so I also am a listener of that. Yes, uh, so, so if you've good. never been exposed to her and you're a podcast person because you're listening to this, that would be a good way to introduce you to her because she, she does a great called, job. Is it Unlocking Us? Yes, I think it's called, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so. so that's great. What is next for Beacon of Life? You're just four months into your journey here. Although Beacon of Life has been around for yeah. uh, for quite a while, so we just uh, we just had our 40th yeah. anniversary yeah. Um, in October, actually. So, um, well, we're in the process of wrapping up some organizational strategic planning and kind of looking at where we want to go in the next few years. Um, a lot of what I've been doing in my first few months here is just looking at uh, running things through the filter test. The first question is, is it good? A lot of things you do at a nonprofit or a business are good. But then the next question is, is it best, right? And so that's where you kind of clean off the things on the side that are not completely in line with your mission and vision. There's a million things, infinite number of things that we can oh, do I'm, yes. with our lives, with our businesses, <laughs> with our nonprofits. Uh, but what is the best thing to be doing? So we've kind of been trying to narrow down to that best. Then once we have that figured out, let's solidify that base and then let's move it forward. Um, and so that's what the next few years is going to look like for us. What does it look like for us to really examine our programming and our interactions here. Are they trauma-informed? Are, are they evidence-based? Are they equity-centered, right? Working with a diversity consultant and talking about 
even within our own workplace, right? Are we, are we bringing all the voices to the table? Is everyone, is everyone getting heard? Does our staff and our board and our volunteers, do they accurately represent the population that we serve, right? So if there are um, percentages of uh, people of color in the prison system, does our client population represent that? Does our staff represent that? So that folks are seeing people who look and act like them in, some, in certain ways um, represented here. So some of kind of heading in some of those um, directions, wanting to work more with our community partners. I'm talking with other folks in the homelessness, you know, sector in, in Des Moines and saying where are there gaps in services? Where are there ways where we could, what are some areas we could maybe grow that would fill in community? So that we're not just working on an island with our own little plan and, and yeah. making it happen without really knowing, well, this is what the community needs, right? Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of folks I'm still meeting and, and certainly during COVID it's, a little bit more difficult to network and folks so uh, but we're, we're you know we're we're cruising along I I like to I move fast yeah thankfully I have people here that stop and go wait a minute wait a minute don't forget about this or else the, you know I tend to be more cause oriented sure. whereas some people are more people oriented and you need both in a society but Absolutely. those people oriented folks are really good at paying attention to those one-on-one -on -one relationships and how decisions will affect individual people right? Whereas people like me that are cause-oriented, I just try to make this big wave and, and hustle forward. And I might step on someone's toes on the way and, and not intentionally doing that. So I have to stay connected with folks who make sure that I'm uh, moving at a pace that is safe and works well for other, everyone else too. So <laughs> That's awesome. Oh gosh. Well, that's, that's great. It'll be fun to continue to watch and see how things progress. Mm -hmm. And as we navigate this crazy environment uh -huh. too, but of course there, there's always going to be a need here and gonna, it'll be great to see how people's lives continue to be uh, changed here and empowered into yes. being able to do so many more things. So thank you for what you're doing for our community and giving people those choices. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to me. You certainly got me on my soapbox. So. Oh, no, I love it. <laughs> oh, you did a thank great you. job. It's, it's been great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Amplify Iowa podcast. If you enjoy these stories, please leave us a review, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and follow Amplify Iowa on social media. A-M-P-L-I-F-I-A. Amplify Iowa. Small businesses. Doing big things.